Turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, and uh, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, your word is truth. And we need to hear and to know the truth. Will you today, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, teach our hearts and our minds and apply your word to our lives? Give us real focus in these moments. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And I do, uh, Connie and I want to thank you for your uh, prayers for us uh, as we dealt with COVID. And I'm I'm feeling good and uh, thankful to be here and all your kindnesses and and kind words. uh, uh, Never underestimate what those mean to uh, someone going through any kind of situation like that. Well, we're entering into the book of uh, Philippians, only one week late. And uh, even though this uh, whole letter only has 104 verses, uh, this will take us into the summer because there is just so much in this uh, amazing uh, epistle. It is called an epistle or a letter. Most call it uh, the letter of joy, the epistle of joy. Uh, In those 104 verses, joy and rejoice is used 16 times, and it's expanded on uh, each time it's used. And yet... It was written from prison. So how can such joy come from one who is in those kinds of circumstances? Well, the short answer, I'm not going to keep you in suspense. The short answer is Christ. And we're going to be taken again and again to him. That that. Uh, our joy, Paul shows us, should not hinge on our circumstances. If your joy hinges on your circumstances, you're going to have some joy. But you're also going to have a lot of times where there is no joy because of painful things that you may be going through. Now, speaking of joy, uh, I don't think 
it's at all an exaggeration to say that not only is that the, the theme of this book, but it's also a theme of our church, of St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church. It is right in our mission statement. It is fleshed out in our vision statement. Uh, in our mission statement, is our mission is to help people joyfully know Jesus Christ, love him more, and serve him better. And the way we always explain that is joyfully is the umbrella term, and it modifies those three things. So uh, to joyfully know Jesus Christ, to joyfully love him more, and to joyfully serve him better. Know, love, and serve. And then we explain it somewhat in our uh, vision statement, Vision 2022. Here's, here's what we say. At SAPC, we believe that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the, the first answer to the first question in Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, to enjoy him forever. Therefore, we believe that joy should characterize everything we do. Joy denotes the deep and abiding joy of which Paul speaks as well as the appropriate and genuine outward joy arising naturally from our relationship with Jesus Christ. It should not merely be an afterthought, but should permeate every activity and ministry. Now, <clears throat> what we've said there is what we are going to flesh out in this book of Philippians. And that is that uh, there is an outward and appropriate joy for believers. Uh, laughter is good. Outward expressions of joy are appropriate at appropriate times. And I'm convinced that where God's Holy Spirit is, there will be those times. And yet, there will also be times where that's not the kind of joy that we're talking about. And that's why we use the term that joy denotes the deep and abiding joy of which Paul speaks. And of course, the book of Philippians is one of those. Where if you looked at his outward circumstances, anyone judging his circumstances would say, well, he, he has no reason for joy. And you know what? From an outward perspective, he didn't have reason for joy. And that's why we talk about the deep abiding joy that does not depend upon our circumstances. So as we begin this journey through Philippians, we, we will appreciate the message better. We'll appreciate... Uh, uh, everything that we study in a deeper way if we uh, are reintroduced to the human writer um, and we understand the recipients a little bit about their situation as well. So first of all, let's look at the sender himself. Uh, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to learn some things about Paul in the book of Philippians. We'll look at these in a lot more depth when we get there. But just uh, so we understand 
uh, even his greeting here, uh, by way of context, and by the way, context is that which comes before a passage and that which comes after, and it always helps us to understand the passage itself. But if you look in Philippians 3, we learn some things about Paul down in uh, verse uh, 4. He says this, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here is Paul talking about himself back when his name was Saul, before he ever met Jesus. And he's saying, look, if you want to talk about credentials, let me tell you what my credentials have been. And when he talks about these, he is talking about those things that he valued, that he would have bragged about, but also that others in his circles where he cared about their opinion, they would have admired him for these things in terms of his credentials. So there's Saul before he came to Christ. These are things that would have commended him and others would have looked up to him because of. Now, let's stop and be reminded uh, a little bit about one of these. We'll we'll come back to all of these in, in a lot more depth when we get there. But I do want us to be reminded why uh, it, it talks about him being a, a persecutor of the church. Because we need to keep this in our mind even as we consider, even the greeting. Uh, it makes a difference because of his background. In the book of Acts, uh, we see that when believers were under persecution, Saul was right in the middle of it. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He was commending it. He was approving of it. And then the scripture says that he went about ravaging the church, literally going door to door and dragging men and women out to prison. That was what Saul did. He was not content with anything in his life. He was not joyful about anything in his life. And then Saul met Christ. He met him on the road to Damascus and everything changed. Saul became Paul, but but much more than just that outward part of his name changing, he became a new creature in Christ. And we even read in this same passage in Philippians 4, going on to, down to uh, verse 7, I'm sorry, Philippians 3, 
uh, he says this, and he's talking about how it changed for him. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him and have, having a righteousness um, of not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So do you get what he's saying? What he's saying is, you know what? Before, before I came to Christ, before that encounter on the road to Damascus, all of those things I just listed those were the things that meant so much to me. And they meant a lot to others around me. They made me somebody. And he says, now, you know what those things are? They're rubbish. Garbage. Worthless. But he doesn't just say, those things are no good. He says it's because of the surpassing glory of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what made those other things unimportant to me. So that it was no longer about my righteousness. It was really his perceived righteousness under the law. It's no longer about that, but only the righteousness of Christ that I received by faith. That's what he's saying makes all the difference. And then the other person mentioned as a sender is Timothy. Now, he was well known to the church in Philippi. He was involved in, in planting the church. He didn't, they didn't really need an explanation about who Timothy was. But notice how Paul then describes uh, him and Timothy. He calls them servants. Servants. This is the only uh, letter that we have that Paul wrote where he nowhere uh, speaks of his apostleship or his authority. Often that's one of the first things he says, Paul an apostle. Or very early in the letter. Maybe you remember when we went through uh, 2 Corinthians well, he spoke about his apostleship and then he came, would come back to it and did that several times through the letter. Talked about his own authority, that how it came from, from God and, and so on. And the reason was because that church, there were those that were attacking his authority, that were undercutting his authority, that were saying, you know, what kind of apostle is he? He's not even a real apostle he has no authority now that was that church but we don't see any of that here with in in the book of philippians and evidently that was because that was never an issue with them they understood his authority they understood his apostleship now that word uh translated servants could also be translated 
bond slave. Later in Philippians, in Philippians 2, we see this passage, the one that we read this morning responsively. We see that as the the great servant passage showing that he was the the ultimate uh, servant and and bond slave. So it could have referred to the Philippians 2, but it also could have referred to the fact that he was under house arrest at the time. He literally uh, was in chains. Now, the scripture doesn't really tell us, but most that I've read anyway believe that uh, he wrote this from from Rome. And uh, that argument really makes the most sense to me. Uh, In any case, he was uh, in prison. But uh, in terms of why I think it probably was Rome, we we read down in Philippians 1.13 how his imprisonment for Christ became a witness to all the imperial or the praetorian guard. Uh, Over in Acts 28, there's an indication that he was under house arrest with one Guard. Now, and we're going to learn more about Paul as we go through this letter. But who, who are the recipients of the letter? It says, to all, verse 1 again, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So here, here's the term, uh, the saints in Philippi. These are the believers. That word translated saints in the original language uh, could be translated holy, holy ones, uh, set apart ones, sanctified ones. Now, make no mistake, he wasn't calling them that because of how good they were. In other words, he, he wasn't saying... I'm writing this letter to all you really, really good people in Philippi. But instead, by calling them saints, by calling them holy, sanctified, set apart, he was reminding them of what their identity is. That you're not just a bunch of uh, filthy sinners. You, because of what Jesus did, you're set apart. You're holy. You're sanctified. So when he teaches them of their identity, then what we do is we seek to live to our identity, to who really we are. Philippi was a very Rome-like city. Uh, Some commentators have talked about how how a, a lot of Roman soldiers were given property or a place there, and so they would actually retire to that area, which, as you can imagine, would make it feel, give it very much a, a, a Roman uh, feel. Most in that city were devoted to Caesar's claim of being Lord and Savior. That was his claim. And most believe that. They practiced that. There were just a few Jews. We know that because uh, when Paul 
first went there, they didn't even have a synagogue. And it didn't take many to, to form a synagogue. You, you need ten men and, in a city, and they gather together, and they can form a synagogue. So there were very few Jews there. Notice, then he says, uh, with the overseers and deacons. Now, these would be the officers of the church. Uh, Deacons, we're familiar with that term. And then overseers would be the elders in the church. And that term is interchangeable in in the New Testament. When you see the word overseer, you can think in your mind elder, if you wish. That's the parallel. That's where we get our our two offices. Um, But that indicates that even though... uh, the church in Philippi had a very humble beginning. Think about who the, the first converts, the, the core group. You know, they're planting a church. You've got to have a, a core group. Well, you have Lydia, the businesswoman. You've got the tormented slave girl that evidently was converted to Christ. You've got the Philippian jailer and his family and a few other converts. That was the core group that started this church. And yet here we are, just a few years later, and they are established to the point where they've got officers, they've got elders and deacons. Now let me bring that up to our day just to to draw a parallel why I think that's significant back there. Even in our day, in our denomination, uh, when we plant churches, we call them a mission church. And they don't become what we call uh, a particular church, which is what we are, until they're self-supporting and they have uh, their own officers. They've elected their own officers, their leadership. So once they do those things, then... We make them into a particular church, and we are saying they are established. They're on their own. They're no longer uh, a mission church. And so that's what we're seeing here. Within these few years, they started with this very humble group of people, and now they're to the point where their own leadership has been raised up among them. Now, look at the the next verse, which is really the blessing that he gives to them. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, I like to use that at at the end of my emails often, grace and peace, because I I love this blessing. Why grace? Why peace? One commentator said, grace and peace are twin sisters. Grace being the firstborn, Where grace abounds, peace thrives. Where grace is stunted, peace shrivels. So they're they're like sisters, the commentator said. So first of all, all grace. So we have Paul. He's got nothing to commend himself to God in terms of his own righteousness. He thought he did, but he didn't. And not only that, he's the enemy of the church of Jesus Christ. He's got nothing, and yet God set his love on him anyway and ambushes him 
on the road to Damascus and gives him a new heart and makes him a new creature. Do any of us really have an excuse that, that we've, we've done too many bad things to where God wouldn't accept us? If you're feeling that way, think on this one who was a terrorist, who persecuted the church, who oversaw the death of believers, and yet God redeemed him. That is grace. Timothy was in Christ only by grace. His mother was Jewish, father a Greek. He heard the gospel and he believed. You don't have any reason to give up on others that you think are too hard-hearted or will never come to Christ. Whether it's someone in your family or someone you work with or your neighbor or someone you're in school with, when you think, there's no way, I look at them and I cannot even picture them as ever bowing a knee to Christ, remember Paul. That's grace. That would have been what people thought about him. So much so that it took some convincing of uh, the early church. They said, wait a minute, we know this guy. He's not, a, he's not a follower of Christ. How do we know he's a follower of Christ? Because of what he was. And then there's us. In and of ourselves, we have nothing to commend us to God, and yet he offers his love to us anyway. That is grace. And then there is grace that he gives to his people to persevere, to endure, to trust, to believe in his sovereignty. And then Paul blesses them with peace. Now, let me remind you of his circumstances. They were not circumstances that would be conducive to being at peace. He was waiting. He, he knew that he would get a verdict from Rome that for him would mean either life or death. He didn't know when. It was hanging over him. And yet in the midst of that time, he found peace and he had joy because he had Christ. So how can we have peace in the middle of that? Paul is going again and again uh, to uh, point us back to Jesus, who was his greatest hope for peace and joy and was their greatest hope for that and is our greatest hope for it as well. Some of you are in a parallel situation to that in a way that uh, Paul 
was going through. For some of you, it's your health. You don't know what direction it's going to go. Some of you may be waiting on results of, of a test that potentially could change the rest of your life. And, and it's, it's hanging over you. Or there's something else heavy hanging there that is weighing you down. We are in a time of peace and joy stealers that is beyond what most of us have seen in our lifetime, at least over a long period of time, like a year that it's been since we've been going through this. It seems like everywhere we turn, there's sadness. I've had a lot of very sad phone calls. Now that's part of ministry. That's always a part of the church. But often there is the other side of it where, where it is outweighed by, by joy and, and victories that are going on. But we are in a weighty time. And I know that many of you feel that weight upon you. How's it going with you? Are you fearful? Uncertain about the future? Well, the truth is we may feel less certain about the future right now because of what's been going on. But even before all this, we never really knew what the future would bring. Some of us might have convinced ourselves that we knew the direction of our life and, and so on and had confidence in that. If you had confidence in that, it was misplaced confidence. I, I tell you so often, control is an illusion. If you think you're in control of your life, you're deluding yourself. It is only the sovereign one who is in control. But the reality is that's the best place for it to be. Do you really want control of your life? Are you that confident that you know what's best for you? If you've lived any length of time at all, I know that you can look back and see how often that you would have gone another direction and God made that impossible by His grace. Well, today's the Super Bowl. And maybe the greatest quarterback of all time, I'm not telling you who I'm for, I'm just making that point is playing. His name's Tom Brady. And he had a very candid moment earlier in his life. It's something you can still watch on YouTube and in terms of uh, uh, an interview that was done with him. He was 27 years old. He's in his 40s now, so that it was about 2005. 
And he was being interviewed, and he made this statement. He, he had won three championships already, three Super Bowl rings at age 27. And he said, is that all there is? There's got to be more than this. The interviewer said, well, well, what is it, Tom? Do you know what it is? And he said, I don't know. I wish I did. Is it possible that in times like this, there can be joy? Cyprian wrote way back in the third century to his friend Donatus. You will see how parallel the world was then to now. He said this, This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Thieves on the high road, pirates on the seas, in amphitheaters, men murdered to please the applauding crowds. Under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus. An incredibly bad world. And yet, in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. They have discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of this sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. The most joyful man in Rome was in jail. But because of Jesus Christ, he was also the freest man in Rome because he was first and foremost in bondage to Jesus Christ. That is the promise for those who trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. There can be joy for you in these times. Let's bow together. Lord, will you help us not to pursue something out there called joy, but to pursue Christ and then to take joy because we know him. We look to you for this. We cannot engineer it. We can't conjure it up. It would be fleeting if we did. We need something deeper. Thank you, Lord, that that whatever is going on in our life, 
when we are in relationship with Jesus Christ, there is peace with you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.